Okay, good morning. It's wonderful to resume our Amuna, our weekly Amuna Shir. Uh, we're off next week. Wednesday's Erev Sukkot. Unless you want to come, I'm happy to come, but I suspect nobody wants to. We're going to learn a piece today from the Divra Yoel, which is the Sat Marebbe, Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum. And um, we're not embracing his perspective on uh, Zionism, but even when we hashkafically have differences with uh, great people, we can still learn and draw from their wisdom and their words and their example. And this, is, uh, this case is no different, the, uh, the Satma Rebbe. So, you okay? So Satma Rebbe says the following. Everyone have a copy? There's coffee, if you'd like coffee, please enjoy a cup. Says the uh, Satma Rebbe, he's finishing a, a larger article, larger essay, and he says, Let's end with the following. We just said on Rosh Hashanah three times. In fact, it was the subject of my Rosh Hashanah speech. These words, Today is the birthday of the world. Today the world sits in judgment. We spoke about a few different explanations of what is the connection between the two halves of that sentence. Naomi, there's, there's chairs here. There's more chairs here if you want. Um, so... Um, it's a little anticlimactic to speak about this on Aserah We have almost a year till we say these words again. But it's the principle of these words which drive not only Rosh Hashanah, but also really inspire and inform Yom Kippur as well. So what do we say in these words? Im kebanim, rachameinu kerachem av abanim. God, if we are to you like children, then have pity on us, have compassion on us, like a father has compassion for a child. V'im ka'avadim, and if we don't have the close relationship of children... If all we are is avadim, if we're slaves, then our eyes are looking to you, we depend on you. We rely on you. We depend on you for your generosity, for your kindness, for your, for your mercy. Ask the Sat Rebbe, why is it we have this contrast? God, there's two paradigms and models of relationship we could have with you. We can be your children, or we can be your servants, your slaves. If we're your servant or slave, our eyes are on to you. We look to you for your mercy, for your compassion. Why only if we're his servants? Why if we're his sons? Why if we're his children? Are we not? Even if we're God's children, as our father, we have no other recourse. There is no other one to rely upon. We lean on God. He is our rock. And we need His, we depend on His kindness, on His sustenance. We depend on everything. So why do we only use the expression, We look to you in the model or the paradigm of being His servant, not of being His children. This is the question of the Divrei Yol, of the Satmar Rebbe. And he says the following, The has a debate between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda Sover, See, we have different verses, different psukim in the Torah. On the one hand, it says, We are God's children. We are His children. We descend from Him. We carry His DNA. He has represented in us. We are His legacy. All the notion that children represent to a parent, we are God's children. On the other hand, we have psukim that talk about our being His avadim. We are his servants. We are his slaves. We report to him. He's our boss. We serve him. 
So the Gemara there in Kedushan has a debate between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehud. Rabbi Yehud is of the opinion that when are we God's children? We're God's children when? When osim ritzono shamakom. When you behave, when you're obedient, when you're loving to God, when we see ourselves as His children, He sees Himself as our Father. But when we're disobedient, when we don't identify with Him as our Father, when we ignore and neglect what He wants of us, so then He doesn't relate to us as children, like a father who has an unconditional love. He relates to us like avadim, who are accountable, and so on. That's the opinion of Yehuda. Whereas Rabbi Meir, so Rabbi Meir says, no, you're always called children. You're always called children. There's nothing you can do to not be your parents' child. Jeffrey Dahmer's trial, I'm not saying I know this, I'm guessing, his mother sat in the, in the courtroom saying, my son is innocent, you don't know, he's really a good boy, this isn't really him. Right? A parent, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. But a parent even when their child is exceedingly late for school, always loves, always loves their children. This is a minute. This is becoming a practice here. Just different children. We rotate. At least this one can walk to school. So we, um, a parent has, in most cases, in most cases, there are exceptions to every rule, a parent has an unconditional love. An unconditional love. No matter how much the child has strayed, how distant they've become, how alienated, but in, within that parent is this love. Which makes sense because we love ourselves and there's no greater expression of an extension of ourselves, of a connection of ourselves, than our children. We love our children as our extension. We believe in them like we believe in ourselves. We rationalize their behavior like we rationalize our own. We find a way to see the good in them like we see the good in ourselves. They are an extension of us. So Abiyudu says, when are we God's children? When we see ourselves, as, when we see Him as our Father. And when are we not His children? When we don't see him as our father. Comes along Rabbi Meir and says, no, we're always God's children. God loves us like a parent with unconditional love. So how do we paskin? Who's right? What is the accurate description of our relationship with the Almighty? Is he this unconditional parent who no matter where we go and how far we stray, is waiting for us to return and loves us unconditionally? Or... Or, if we violate the relationship, do we transform it from the intimacy and the love and care of a parent to just being avadim, we're servants. Servants and slaves are measured by their service, by their loyalty, they're held accountable, their consequences, they're not necessarily forgiven, things aren't overlooked. So which is the relationship that we have? So we have a principle, we have a rule in the Talmud, that whenever Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda disagree, we follow the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. That's the rule. We always follow Rabbi Yehuda. Why do we follow Rabbi Yehuda? In the Gemara and Daphid Gimel gives us the reason why. It's not a negative comment on Rabbi Meir that we don't follow him. In fact, it's actually an expression of admiration. Why? You know, it was known before God, as if God testifies himself, that in the generation of Reb Meir, there was no one like Reb Meir. I gave a, a people of the book about Reb Meir a few years ago. It was incredible. Reb Meir was incredible. And if you understand the marriage that Reb Meir had, anyone who Reb Meir was married to? Beria. Reb Meir was married to Buria. And Buria was a scholar, a righteous scholar in her own right. And the Talmud records the debates, the level of 
the brilliance and the debates and the discourse between, between the two, Reb Meir and Berea. It's a complicated relationship. There's a Rashi in Avodah Zarah, which is so complicated that many believe it's not even an accurate or real Rashi. It's forged later. It's not for now, but it's a very um, licentious Rashi. It's, it's really a... Uh, Rashi describes that Rabbi Meir and Berea would compete who is more righteous, who has more self-control, who is more brilliant, and tells the story of, of Rabbi Meir setting up one of his students to solicit Bruya, so that at the moment she would give in, he could say to her, you see, I'm more righteous. Only she, he didn't get there in time. It's a whole Rashi. Let's not even, let's not even get into that. And Bruya dies, and Reb Meir, the tradition is, you know, goes back to Babylonia, embarrassed. It's a whole. Reb Meir was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. A righteous man. Reb Meir Balhanes. The Talmud knows him as Reb Meir Balhanes. We have a member of our shul named Reb Meir Balhanes. Reb Meir Balhanes is named for the great Tana, Reb Meir Balhanes. He was the person who brought about miracles. He was brilliant, he was righteous, and so on. So if he was so righteous and no one in his generation was even on par, was on level with him, why do we follow Reb Yehuda? When the two debate, why is it we don't go according to him? So say the rabbis, why? Because, in fact, he was so brilliant that his thinking was inaccessible to his colleagues. He was on such another plane, he was on such another level, that his colleagues just couldn't understand his analysis, his conclusions, how he arrived at them. So, it's not that we don't paskin like him because we think he's so inferior, inadequate. We don't paskin like him because he's so superior, nobody could even understand what he was talking about. So therefore, Allah, in the Machlokas, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, Allah, Rabbi Meir, when there's a debate between the two, we follow Rabbi Meir. Good. Well, if he's, uh, says the Satmar Rebbe, according to this, Efshalomar, the Masha in Allah, Rabbi Meir, who rakba olam hazeh, shala yuchlu lamar al saifdaito. When is it we don't follow Rabbi Meir? When there's a debate about how to live halacha practically in this world. Hilchus Shabbos, Hilchus Kashrus, Hilchus Nida, Hilchus Lashon Hara, Hilchus Business, whatever the issue is. But when there's a practical debate about how to function in this world, we don't understand Reb Meir, so we can't. We follow Reb Yehuda. But when it comes to the heavens, God knows that there's no one in the generation, and while we can't tap into, we can't access Reb Meir's thinking. Clearly, the Almighty can. Because have a great day. So therefore, when it comes to heavenly matters, since the heavens does understand Reb Meir, when it comes to heavenly matters, then we do paskin like Reb Meir. So when is it we follow the principle that in the debate between Reb Yehuda and Reb Meir, we follow Reb Yehuda? That's on matters of this world. Because in the matters of this world, the colleagues couldn't understand Reb Meir. But in heavenly matters, where God certainly could understand Reb Meir, we follow Reb Meir. So what comes out according to the Satmar Rebbe? On this debate, are we always God's children? Does He always love us like children even when we are unworthy and disobedient? We follow a mayor. He doesn't quote it, the Rashba and the Tshuva also says the same thing. Even though in the debates between Rebbe and Rebbe Yehuda, the principle is we follow Rebbe Yehuda, this is the exception. In this debate, we follow Rebbe Meir. God loves us unconditionally. He has expectations of us. And we have to meet those expectations. And when we don't, there's consequences. 
parents who practice unconditional love is not a contradiction with parents who also have boundaries and rules and, and conditioning and consequences. The two don't contradict. They don't contradict. The conditional love means that no matter what you do, you can't make me stop loving you. But sometimes the way I love you is that I have to teach you accountability and I have to teach you consequences. The challenge of our generation of helicopter parenting and the uh, participation trophy generation and the parents who the kids are always right, the teacher's always wrong, was a tremendous disservice to our children. Proper parenting includes teaching children. I think one of the primary, it's my own personal feeling, not necessarily that I'm clearly evidence that I'm great at it, but that we're great at it, that I'm great at it, is that one of the primary responsibilities to me of parenting is to teach consequences. Because if we don't, the world will. The world will. Mommy can't go into the boss when you start coming late to work and explain why and write a note and demand it's okay, you have to get away with it. And if we don't teach the consequences and accountability, the world will. And therefore, that's one of our primary, that's one of our primary jobs. So, we pass on like Rameir. Hashem wants us to view our relationship with Him in the model of a parent and a child. God has expectations of us. That's what I spoke about on Shabbat Shuvah, this beautiful essay by Revolbi, where he talks about the notion of emuna b'chet. Emuna b'chet. Right? This is our emuna shir. We spend our emuna shir talking about faith in God. But Revolbi says, faith in God is nice, but it's theoretical. Having faith in God is beautiful. But it's easy, so to say, to believe that there's a creator, there's a first cause, there's a being who brought about our existence. The next level, faith in chait, to believe in, we'll call it sin, but you all know I hate that word, to believe, to believe that that being, that creator, that almighty, has expectations of us. He has demands of us. And that when we don't meet him, when we fail them, when we disappoint him, there are consequences. There are results. It matters. That's emuna b'chait. And says Revolbi, you could be a kofer, you could be a heretic when you don't believe God exists, but you're also a heretic when you believe God exists, but you don't think anything you do matters. Oh, God exists, but He doesn't really care what I put in my mouth. He doesn't really care what I say, what comes out of my mouth. He doesn't care what I look at. He doesn't care how I report my taxes. He doesn't care whether I make a bracha before I eat. Come on, God's got much bigger things. There's natural disasters all over the world. God's worried about Puerto Rico. God's worried about all these much bigger things. You think He cares about whether I made a bracha before I drank the coffee? The answer is yes. He doesn't care for Him. Just like a parent. When we care that our child does what's right, is it because otherwise we're going to look bad? Is it because my ego's involved? It shouldn't be. As a parent, our desire, our hope, our prayer with our child to do the right thing is because we love them. We want you to excel in school. We want you to be healthy emotionally, physically, spiritually. We want you to. It's for you. And when God has these expectations and He creates the institution of chait and there's consequences to them, it's not for him. He's, he's omnipotent. He's perfect. He's infinite. He doesn't need it. It's for us. But it also means, just like the parent, so if I say to my child, you, um, you did X, Y, and Z, you're grounded. They say, well, why are you grounding me? I say, it's for you. I want you to learn. Well, do me a favor, they say to me. The, the child says to the parent, don't worry about me. Don't ground me. Take care of yourself. I'll take care of myself. Do we as the parents say, well, okay, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> say, it's ridiculous, it's absurd. When you graduate my home, that will be the reality. Not because I'm okay with it, but because I have no other choice. 
Over the last year plus, I've been adjusting to the reality that my oldest doesn't live under my roof anymore. And when I text her, where are you and what's going on and what's going on, I want to tell her, you can't be out this late or you can't be doing that. I have to remember that <laughs> she's graduated our home to an extent. But when they're in your home, a child can't say, look, you take care of yourself, I'll take care of myself, this is the way I want to do it. Uh, they, they try to say this. I'm entitled to have my own lifestyle, my own choices. And we say, that's all lovely, give me your phone. That's all nice, you're grounded. So the Rebona Shalom says the same thing. We say, God, look, you take care of your world. We'll take care of ourselves. What do you care? Are you saying it's for me that you want me to make the bracha? It's for me you want me to be honest? It's for me you want me to keep Shabbos and kosher? I'm good without it. Let me take care of me. God says, that's nice. I'm your father. I know what's best for you. And so that was Revolba's thesis. There's Amuna in God, and there's Amuna that what we do matters to God. There's fear, there's heresy when you deny God, and there's heresy when you deny that what we do, do matters to God. Both matter. So God is our Father. In fact, that's what we're saying throughout this year. Avinu Malkeinu. Throughout the season, rather. The Aserah Tshuva, Yom Kippur, we don't say it when it's on Shabbos, but we will at Ne'ila. Avinu Malkeinu. Now, we don't say Malkeinu Avinu. Which is He first and foremost? Because these are the two models. Which is He first and foremost? Our Father or our King? He's Avinu Malkeinu. I once uh, sent over a beautiful insight from Rav Yankala Galinsky. That's all in his Sefer of Higarata, where he says the Gemara has two different opinions. A father is able to be forgiving. So if you say to the father, can I sit in your seat? He says, yeah, you can sit in your father's seat. Let's say you say to the king, hey king, can I sit in your throne? He says, sure, try out the throne. You're still not allowed to sit there. That's the Gemara's conclusion. Condition, why? Because the king... Even though your father, to a certain extent, is the um, embodiment or symbol of God, but the king, the way we relate to with awe and reverence the king, if we become casual in our attitude towards the king, that will impact our attitude towards God. So therefore the king is not entitled to be foregoing of his, uh, the honor due to him. So what happens, what's the halacha? If you're the prince, your father is the king. He's both your father and the king. Which rule do you follow? Can he be forgiving and foregoing or not? So Rabbi Yanka Galinsky shows from a number of sources that he can. That when there's a com- competition or a conflict between the two identities, Avinu trumps Malkeinu. And that's the attitude we come before God when we say these Avinu Malkeinus. On the one hand, Avinu, I feel close to you, casual, comfortable, I could go into your bed and snuggle with you. On the other hand, Malkeinu, I can't sit in your chair, you're my king. It's both. And this relates to what we spoke about Shabbat Shuvah, the balance between Avas Hashem and Yiras Hashem. We have a loving relationship with God, and then we have a relationship with God that's filled with awe and that's filled with reverence. So here the, the um, Satma Rebbe is saying that even though we paskin like Rabbi Yehuda in a debate between the two, on this issue, we follow Rabbi Meir. That no matter what we do, God loves us like a father. No matter how far we stray, no matter how distant we feel, no matter how much we violate or neglect what he wants, in the end of the day, he might still hold us accountable. That's why we're going to shul. Rosh Hashanah Kippur, we're being judged, we're doing tshuva, we're growing, we're improving, we're repairing. But in the end of the day, we can be rest assured. And it's so comforting. Unlike other religions, which depict an angry God, a vengeful God, a God who wants to exact justice, a God who, who punishes. God's our Father. A Father has rules and boundaries. 
But in the end of the day, he loves us unconditionally. He's waiting, he wants, he's inviting, he's welcoming us to come back. He's rooting for us, he's in our corner. And he's going to meet us halfway. And just like when it comes to our children, we set these rules and regulations and these boundaries, and, and when they violate them, we create a consequence. If they, if they are 10% for, uh, apologetic or remorseful, ah, we let them off the hook. Because in the end of the day, that's our child, and we love them, and we want them to be happy. So I'm not trying to tell you you only have to do 10% tshuva. <laughs> I, I don't know Hashem's formula. He didn't let me in on his, on his plan. But he's our father. And that's the image that these days, these 10 days, the whole year, but these 10 days are supposed to carry. He's our king. There's no question. The Pasuk in Yeshaya, call out to God when he is close. Find him when he's nearby. And our rabbis tell us, when is that? These 10 days. The rest of the year, the king sits on his throne in his palace. And through our prayers and through our mitzvahs, we're trying to have access to him. And these 10 days of the year, the king leaves the palace, he's in his chariot, and he's going city to city. And we have access to him. So on the one hand, he's the king we have access to. On the other hand, he's our father who loves us. Yes? You just answered my question, which was, that's why we changed the Pesukim and Shimon Asherah to Hamelech. Hamelech, exactly, because he's the king. That's, Rosh Hashanah is the process of being Mamlech Hashem. We coronate God, we make him our king. And now we spend 10 days saying, well, if we just made his king, the king, we renewed his contract as king, he's about to take stock of his whole kingdom to decide what's worthy, what's serving its purpose, and what should he get rid of. So the, the experience on Rosh Hashanah of coronating God king launches the 10 days of repentance where we say, oh boy, I better make sure I'm worthy of continuing in his kingdom. Am I serving his kingdom? Am I advancing his kingdom? I know we don't use those words. That's like a Christian thing. God's kingdom and am I here to serve his kingdom? But they, they took that from us, like most of their things. And so we're afraid to use those terms, but that's it. God's the king. This is his kingdom. We serve his kingdom. It also happens to be we are the princes and princesses. It happens to be, you know, the prince and princess also owe the king. They also serve the king. But they also, it's the, it's the king is their father. So we have both, we have both together. I, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt, but it's just you an interrupt. interesting thought. Um, when Princess Anne in, in England speaks to her mother on the phone, yes. on the phone, yeah. she stands. Cause her Who's Princess the, Anne? She's the daughter of Queen Elizabeth. Oh yeah? I yeah. never heard of her. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she had three sons, one daughter, Anne. Really? Charles, Anne, Edward. Huh. The other guy. Huh. Yeah. She stands, she stands huh. to, wow. and because it's her mother is the Queen of England. Wow. And they could be on the phone every day for an hour. They talk like a mother and daughter. Right. But she stands because really? her mother is the Queen of England. Isn't that huh. That's exactly beautiful. Beautiful. So. Time's it. Okay, let's keep going. So on this issue, we follow Reb Meir, that God always loves us like a father. And that which it says, so why do we have the contrast then? We sing the song, If we're your children, have compassion like children, and if you see us as your servants, then we put our eyes to you, we rely on you. So when we do the right thing, everybody agrees we're like children. But if we're like your servants, and we're being disobedient to Azla, Rabbi Yehuda, Kriyam, Ban, Avadim. So in that moment, Rabbi Yehuda is of the opinion that we're like servants. So then we're looking to you. And why are we looking up to you? 
This is the brilliant insight of the Satmar Rebbe. If we're acting like children, everybody agrees you're our father. If we're not acting like children, Rebbe Meir still believes you're our father. Rabbi Yehuda thinks that now you're our master. So, we're looking up to you because in heaven, you paskin like Rabbi Meir. We need you to paskin like Rabbi Meir. We need you to follow his opinion that we're always his children. So what's the mishpat that we want you to be kind to us on? The judgment we want you to be kind to us on is to paskin like Rabbi Meir, not like Rabbi Yehuda. Last paragraph. The other way of understanding all this is that we can always transform the relationship back. Even if you follow Rabbi Yehuda, that we're like servants, we can become children once again. And how? Through tshuva. Tshuva t'liya b'nekuda p'nimi sh'belev. Sh'raka bochin belev ha'adam yachol l'havchenzos. Where does tshuva happen authentically? Tshuva takes place in the heart of man, in the heart of woman. Tshuva takes place inside us. How sincere, how genuine, how authentic are we? Fellow man can't ever know that. Yeah, we see who's shuckling the hardest in shul. We see who presents themselves as the most righteous. We see who has the longest shmona esrei. But we have no idea what's going on in a person's heart. The one who looks like they've been dismissive of everything might lie in bed at night and have a genuine conversation with God and be the most sincere, closest person. And the person who's, who's shuckling the most in shul, when the moment they walk out of shul, could not remember God the rest of the day. We have no idea. The only one who knows what's in our hearts is the Almighty. Is the Almighty. The Rambam writes, Tshuva is when we have such regret in our heart to the point that God would testify on our behalf that we have regret. I've been to court testifying on people's behalf. I said, they have remorse. They didn't mean this. You have to be lenient. This is not who they are. And, you know, I'm saying that. I believe it. I wouldn't testify falsely. I believe it. But I don't know. How do I know? Only God can testify as to our sincerity. And He does. When we do the right thing with God, have compassion like a father and a child. And if, if we in fact are like servants, that we failed you. And we're called servants. Our eyes are on you to know what's in our heart. Even if it appears to other people like we're not being obedient, God, our eyes are on you. We're looking to you to know what's in our heart, to testify on our behalf that inside us is someone who really wants to be close to you. That inside us is someone who wants to do the right thing. That really by our nature inside us is somebody who loves you. And we, we long that Hashem will, will help us. That we'll merit to do full tshuva. And we'll be like children. And like a father, like a parent loves a child who just wants to give good and do good. That we merit a year of light and salvation, that the honor of heaven should be revealed on us and through us. If you turn the page, I may mention this before Ne'ila, so try to forget it by Saturday oh, evening. We will. But this is uh, June 2017. June 2017, Eli Wiesel's son, Alicia Wiesel, wrote an article on his father's Yeritzite. 
And if you look, three paragraphs in the bottom on the first page there. As a young adult, I did the opposite. I raged against my school, against my parents, against my tradition. My father was ill-equipped to explain the rules of modern adolescence, and I raged against myself. His love seemed too heavy to bear. The confidence he had in me grievously misplaced. There's a Hasidic story of the Baal Shem Tov, who was once approached by a Hasid bemoaning how far his son had strayed. The Rebbe's surprising answer, love your son more. My father must have heard this story because he lived it. He believed in me even when I did not believe in myself. He believed in me as I set out on a journey that would take me far from Judaism and far from him. And he believed in me even as I shouted at him. I wanted nothing to do with religion. That I wanted to be an X factor in every equation he and my mother had used to project my life. That I would be an atheist or a Buddhist, anything but what he told me I had to be. My father kept telling me to be a good student, a good son, a good Jew. But he said it more quietly. And he kept setting an example by studying Torah himself by revering the name of his own parents, by defending the Jewish people and Jewish values. Piapsi had learned more than I realized in watching the instructor teach me when I was too out of swim. The most important part of the teaching is in letting go. How could my father love me the way he did when my disrespect was so severe? And here when I read this in June, I thought about Yom Kippur. His love for me was an impossible love. His belief in me was an impossible belief. But he had a way of holding impossible beliefs. And I too have impossible beliefs, beliefs that do not square with rational thought. I believe he's still with me, still believing in me. In the moment when he died, he went from being somewhere to being nowhere. And then he was everywhere. It was as though I could feel the universe resonating with his love for me. Saying, I'm still loving you, I will always love you. I'm with you in everything you do. So when I read this, that's the Rebona Shalom. If that's how Elisha Wiesel could feel about his father, this is what we carry into Yom Kippur. Avinu Malkeinu. Hashem's love for us is an impossible love. Hashem's belief in us is an impossible belief. And that Hashem has a way of holding on to impossible beliefs. He loves us and believes in us more than we do ourselves. And Avinu Malkeinu. Hareyanu Kebanim. Banim Atem Lamakam. We are Hashem's children. So I'm not trying to absolve us of the work we have to do. There's work, there's tshuva, there's growth, there's repair. We have a lot to do, we have a lot to work on. But in the end of the day, what should drive us and give us confidence that the work is worth it is that there's a Father waiting for us. And He loves us. And He has an impossible love for us. But every time that we farther from Him, He just loves us a little bit more. Like the Ba Shem Tov taught. Shavu Gemar Chasimatova should be, it's my favorite expression, Gemar Tov. Gemar Tov translates to, have a big finish. Have a big finish. And that's, uh, I love that expression. It should be a big finish. We should all, in fact, be Signed and sealed for a sweet year of happiness, of good things, of simcha, of only the best of everything. We'll resume our class, please God, after circus.